Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's uh, ask his guidance on our time together. Father, as I just quoted from John 17, your word is truth. It is without error in the giving of that, in the inspiration, the process of inspiration through God the Holy Spirit overseeing the writing of the original autographs. And yet we know that you have also preserved it for us down through the uh, centuries and that we can count upon it even though what most of us read is a translation We know that these translations are faithful to your word and that it is your word that has real power in our lives. It is alive and it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the reason that it is is because it is truth. And, Father, we are thankful that you are the God of truth and that you have revealed truth to us, that we may conform our thoughts, our words, our actions, to that which is uh, stabilized in your immutable omniscience. For, Father, those that uh, depart from this truth, including us at times, we depart only to create instability and chaos in our own souls and in our own lives. And we pray that as we study today, we might come to a greater realization of the importance than the centrality that your word should have in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are back in terms of our study of Ephesians. Now, one of the themes in Ephesians has to do with the fact that now Gentiles, and that would be most of us, Gentiles are included equally in the body of Christ so that there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. Now, when Paul taught that, this was not something that was readily accepted by a lot of the Jews, and that's been captured in a great meme that someone sent me this week. The Apostle Paul is criticized for his Gentile Lives Matter t-shirt. I couldn't resist that. So, as we've studied in, in Ephesians, we've looked at the importance of the fact that we are now in the new man. We put on the new man. That, if, you know, there's been lots of, uh, problems, errors, off, t- off, line teaching on this because of bad English translations, and I've gone through this in detail, 
that these these are past participles in the Greek, which means that they've already been done. We're not to put on the new man as a command to go forward. We have already put on the new man because at the instant of salvation, we put off the old man. And that terminology has been confused because there are many who have taken that to mean that the old man is, is the sin nature. But the old man can't be the sin nature because the contrast is between old man and new man. And we have seen that Paul defines the new man back in Ephesians 2.14 when he talks about the fact that, um, that God has created in himself in, in uh, Ephesians 2.15 that he has created in himself one new man from the two. That defines what we're talking about. And what happens is that because it's, this is difficult to understand that there have been people, well, that means one thing there and it means something else somewhere else, but then they get all lopsided in teaching. And I told you when we got into this that this has been something I've, I've struggled with trying to understand this because of the way a lot of commentaries and others have expressed this. And yet, it's it's not ubiquitous. It is not everyone. And uh, pointed out in some in translations by John Darby that he got it right, about eighty percent right, because he understood that this is something we we've put off the old man, and that would be equated to our position in Adam, and the old man being a description of the human race since it was created, but it was corrupted at the fall, and that corruption continues. And if you don't believe the human race is corrupt, just read the paper, watch the news, immerse yourself in it for three or four hours. And if you're not sick, then you'll probably have it figured out. Uh, It gets worse all the time, it seems. So the old man is being corrupted. That is those who are in Adam. But we have put on the new man. So the new man has a code of conduct, which is what we're focusing on. Now, as we've studied through this second half of Ephesians, I pointed out, going through the outline the last time, that it's introduced by the fact that we are to walk worthy of the calling, that is, of this new position, this high calling, this vocation that is ours. And that calling is, in fact, the new man, the identity of the new man. To put it in a slightly different metaphor that the Scripture uses, we've been adopted into the royal family of God, and there's a, there is a code of conduct for the royal family of God, just as there may have been a code of conduct in the family in which you uh, grew up, where your father would say, you're a member of this family, and as such, this is how you're going to behave. And if you don't, then there will be consequences. So we are part of God's royal family. This is, uh, this is the new man. And so we learned that we've already put on the new man in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, in that paragraph in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. And now this next paragraph in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 is the focus is on not grieving the Holy Spirit. So there are various negative commands that are given here, and that 
as well as positive ones, but failure grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to have to spend some time on understanding what grieving the Holy Spirit is uh, when we get there, but first we have to take some time to understand uh, some of the implications of verse 25. So all of this is grounded on the fact that we are now on this new team called the church. And it's just amazing how many people miss that. Just as on Thursday night, and I, I've said this before, but I think I developed it and, and articulated in a more precise way this last Thursday night talking about love, that the love that is mandated among believers, husbands to wives, within the family of God and toward those who are outside is a fruit of the Spirit. And therefore, it is not the kind of love that you will find in uh, most uh, marriage counseling books, psychology books. A lot of Christian books are nothing more than baptized humanistic psychology. And what they talk about, anybody can do whether they're saved or not saved, so it can't be talking about Christian love. So we have to understand there are these distinctions that are made related to the body of Christ. This is for the church, the church where we are all indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we are to uh, walk by the Spirit so that he can fill us with the character of Christ. So that puts it all on a new plane. That's why when Jesus gave a new command to the church, he said that we are to love one another as he has loved us. That, that's, a, that's a high standard that none of us can achieve apart from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So we really have to be understand that distinctive role of the Holy Spirit for the church-age believer. And this, this takes all of us to a, a sort of a new level, our clarification in, in our understanding of the significance of the church, of the body of Christ in this dispensation. And so in Christ, we have, I don't hit something in it, but me, there we go. We're called a new man, a new body, and a holy temple. And fourth, there's the emphasis on the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, two terms used to describe the church and the royal priesthood or the family of God. So we are a new household. These terms, new man, new body, holy temple, new household, that's all describes us as the body of Christ. It's something that has never been in existence in all of human history. We have been given such privileges and such spiritual assets that it's sad because they are rarely ever taught. And the reason for that is because about 98% of Christianity doesn't believe in the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of uh, the people of God. They don't understand that there's a distinction between Jews and uh uh, between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And so this is all 
grounded on this. And so we have to live in light of these new uh, eternal realities that we're in Christ because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit that occurs at the instant of salvation. And as we walk in the light, which we'll get to in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, uh, verse uh, verse 8, that we are children of light and are to walk in light. So that's the children of light is our position on the left and our walk is in, on the right circle. That is our daily walk. Uh, this is what Paul talks about when he says that we have put on Christ in Galatians 3, 7. He means this is a past act that took place at the instant of salvation, and it happened uh, by means of the, that baptism by the Holy Spirit. But then we are to experientially put on Christ, and that is the result of our walking by the Spirit, our study of God's Word, abiding in Christ, all those different metaphors that, that Scripture says. And so Paul is correcting the behavior of the Ephesian believers, and he gives this command in, in Ephesians chapter 4, where 17, where he says that you are not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. There's this distinction now. And in 1 Corinthians, he talks about three groups of people. There's unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and the church. That's it. Uh, Not black, white, red, yellow. Uh, It doesn't matter. The distinctions are unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and, and the church. And we are not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles, that is, unsaved Gentiles walk, and that's in the futility of their mind. And then he describes the unsaved Gentile uh, norms and behavior in verses 18 and 19, and then the contrast, but you have not so learned Christ. There's a contrast, and the believer's life, thought life, and what we, what we think, what we say, what we do must be different. Why? because it's grounded in something called truth, and that truth is in Jesus. Now, truth is a is an abused term today because we live in a world that has rejected the notion of absolute truth. In our culture, there used to be a belief in truth, Coming and truth was arrived at through various sources. Uh, after the Enlightenment, believers get truth from the Scripture, and the world gets truth. They think absolute truth either on the basis of their reason, called rationalism technically, or on the basis of their experience, which is called empiricism. Or if they've rejected that, which is what happened historically, because rationalism ultimately can't answer the issues of life, can't deal with them. Empiricism can't really give you absolute truth. And so people can't live as if there's not some value out there somewhere. So they leap into some sort of internal subjectivism, which we call mysticism. And unfortunately, a lot of biblical Christianity is influenced by those three approaches to knowledge. You have those that uh, that mix empiricism with Scripture. They mix human reason with Scripture. The result of that is what has been called uh, Protestant liberalism. 
They don't take the word of God as the ultimate authority by which everything, every thought, every experience should be evaluated. Uh, as as Bible-believing Christians, we must understand that we are to interpret and judge and evaluate our experience by the word of God. We are not to evaluate, judge uh, the word of God by our experience. But that's at the very core of liberalism because in the thinking of the Enlightenment where man became reinforces his independence from biblical authority, what happened at that point is that the Bible began to be judged by human intellectual uh, criteria so that you have the rise of what becomes known as, uh, as historical criticism. And that's the foundation where you look at the Bible as if it's just any other, um, any other literature and you evaluate it on the, on the basis of, of some autonomous or independent human standards. And the result is that, uh, liberal intellectuals, scholars, philosophers found the scripture to be Wanting, So by the time you get into the 19th century, under what was called modernism, the Bible is completely ripped out from under every Christian. One of the men that is considered the father of modern liberalism was a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he said that we can't trust anything in the Bible. There's some good ideas there, but, but it's not what we've always thought it was. Uh, the only way you can uh, validate your uh, religious beliefs is on the basis of feeling. That lays the groundwork for the shift that occurs at the end of the 19th century, which bears the label postmodernism. They're not very creative in their terminology because after modernism, which if you're if you're beyond modernism, then you're not modern anymore. So what are you? And so it's postmodernism. Now the struggle is what are we now that postmodernism is dead? What we call it post postmodernism because we lack terminology. Something like that. It's just an ultimate failure. But what happens in the midst of this is the loss of truth. As David McCallum puts it in the title of his book on postmodernism, it's the death of truth. And so we're surrounded by a culture that no longer believes that there is truth that is of a universal, absolute sense. One person says, well, that's true for me. The next person says, well, your truth isn't my truth, so it's not true for me. And everybody makes up their own idea of what truth is. And where that leads is to both uh, chaos in the soul. And when you have a culture where everybody has a chaotic soul, guess what kind of culture you have? And that's the basis of what we're looking at this morning. The truth, the scripture says, is in Jesus because he is eternal God. That also tells us that truth is in God. It's in the triune God. That is the locus of, of truth. So we have this, this phrase brought to our attention here of truth, which we'll come back to. Now, this is simply a, a reiteration of what John said in the introduction or the preface to his gospel. In John 
1, 1 through 18, we have his, his introduction to his gospel. In verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh. Now, he's already defined the word for us. In verse 1, he said, in the beginning was the word. So there's this entity we're not sure of yet that's the word. And that that is a, a term that is pregnant with significance because word, the word logos in Greek has a host of shades of meaning or nuances. And it has to do with reason. It has to do with thought. It has to do with communication. It has to do with revelation. But there's another area that has come to light in the last 30 or 40 years, first I heard of it was about 15 years ago here, that there was a, an Aramaic word developed by the, uh, by the rabbis called memra. Now, memra was an Aramaic word for word. And in rabbinical thought, and Arnold Fruchtenbaum has developed this in extensive detail now, that the memra was understood by the rabbis between the Old Testament and New Testament by a number of them to be divine, to be the revelation of God, to be distinct from God but the same as God, to be the source of life and light and uh, meaning in life. All of the things that John says in verses 1 through 14 about the Word the rabbis were developing on the basis of Old Testament passages. And so John, as I taught it when I taught John the, some 20-something years ago, uh, most people you read talk about the fact that this word logos, which had a rich heritage in Greek philosophical thought, that that, that was... That was John's frame of reference, but his frame of reference is Jewish. His frame of reference is rabbinical, and the Memra is is also integrally related to truth. So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning, that is, at the time that the beginning started, the Word was already there. And the Word was with God, so there's a distinction made between the Word, the Logos, and God, and the Word was God, where he's clearly stating that the Word is fully divine. So then we come down to verse 14, and John goes on, and he says, the Word became flesh, that is, this second person of the Trinity took on humanity, added humanity to his deity, and he dwelt among us, he lived among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, now let's just stop there a minute. If you're reading through the Gospel of John and you read this and your frame of reference is the Old Testament, how was the glory of the Lord manifested in the Old Testament? We often refer to it by the word Shekinah. Shakan is the Hebrew word meaning the dwelling of something. And so the, the, when you add a ver, a, um, a, an M to the word, to a verb, it becomes a noun. So shakan is a verb and you add an M to it and it's the word mishkan. Mishkan was the Hebrew term for the tabernacle. 
It was where God dwelt. Okay? So, in, and, and what was this, what was the evidence of that? Well, there was the pillar of fire at night, and you, they saw the, this, this light that emanated from the Holy of Holies. And when Moses would go to meet with God, he would come down from the mountain and his face radiated the, the reflection of this light, this divine light in whose presence he was. And he had to put a veil on because it distracted the people. That's how the, we think of the glory of God from the Old Testament. But that's not the way Jesus was. Jesus didn't walk around with this this Shekinah-type glow. It's real, and, and so the first evidence that John's going to give in John 2 of the glory of, of, the, of Jesus is what? He changes the water into wine. He takes care of the problem they had at the, at the wedding. There's no manifestation of his deity in terms of some glow or light or something of that nature. The glory of God as is revealed by Christ is character in John. It is not this effulgence of light that we think of from the Old Testament. So it is character, which is summarized by this phrase, full of grace and truth. And that phrase is a phrase you'll often find, the word full, which is the word on the left, play race. And it's an adjective. It's not a verb. It's an adjective, and it's often followed by by two two words, which is called a double complement. And so it's full of grace and truth or full of the spirit and wisdom or full of of uh, kindness and gentleness. There are different ways in which and all it is is a description of character. So Jesus is uh, full of grace and truth. That means he's the embodiment of divine grace and truth. Now, that's a really important concept that runs all through Scripture. Paul relates to it in our passage. It is true. There's the existence of that which is absolutely immutably true for all people at all times. And it is based on the reality of God's thinking and the reality of how he has created uh, created the world. And this is so important that uh, two verses later, John comes back and he says, and of his fullness, that is, of the character of his grace and truth, we have all received grace for grace. And so that is expanding on this idea that it is through, through Jesus a new level of, the, uh, of grace and truth is realized. It's not that there was no grace or truth in the Old Testament. Some people totally mistake that. It is that this goes to an, the absolute level because it's related to our Lord's manifestation of God's grace and truth in a way that it was never manifested in the Old Testament. It doesn't contradict it. It expands it. It enhances it. It is it, it's a, the greatest expression of grace and truth possible within a limited, finite creation. And then John says in verse 17, uh, the word for always tells us it's explanatory. 
The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's not a contract. That's not law versus grace and truth. The law had a lot of grace in it. Okay. But there's this enhancement of grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. So truth is therefore introduced in, um, in Ephesians uh, chapter four when it talks about the fact that truth is in Christ. And then what we read in the next couple of verses, I don't have a slide for this. He says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as truth is in Christ, that. So what is it that you were taught about Christ? What is it that the evangelists, what, let's go back, the apostles, temporary gift, prophets, temporary gift, evangelists, continuing, and pastor teachers, okay, what is it that the evangelists and pastor teachers have taught you to equip you to do the work of ministry? It's the truth. And what they taught you was that, one, you have already put off concerning uh, our former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt. The old man is all that we are in Adam, and it is growing corrupt. That is, the mass of unsaved humanity is growing corrupt. And then you have a present participle. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our thinking. The focus is on thinking. And verse 24 then, and that you have, and it's an aorist participle again, have already put on the new man. Uh, Colossians 3, 7 and following makes it very clear that these have already occurred. It's stated slightly different in the grammar, but both of them are indicating that at the instant of salvation, you, we put off the old man, we put on the new man, which is created by, uh, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now we get to the application. Verses 25, I think all the way down to verse 33 of chapter 5, actually uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. After that, we get into uh, warfare. But all of this section from 425 down to 6-9 is application. But the application comes out of understanding that truth is in Christ. We learned him a certain way, and that way means that we have put off the old man and we put on the new man, and that new man needs to be renewed according to knowledge. So we come to verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, that's how the King James puts it, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, there's about three parts to this that we need to spend a lot of time on. And the first has to do with the lying versus the truth. So this should really be translated this way. For this reason, the, the, the Greek that is used there is this word dio, and it indicates the development of a strong conclusion. So for this reason, what reason? The reason that we have put off the old man and we have uh, put on the new man. For that reason, because you have already put off the lie. Now, that word for putting off is apotithemi. It's the same word that's used back in verse um, 22 that we have already put off uh, the old man. And it's the same grammatical form. So what this is saying is when we put off the old man, we positionally put off the, the lie. And it is the lie because you have an article with the word um, 
in in the Greek. So we are uh, we have already put off the lie, and that means that we are uh, to live a certain way. Now the word there for the lie is the noun pseudos. It's not a verb. It's not a gerund or participle, as it's usually translated, put off lying or put off um, uh, uh, falsehood, something like that. In Colossians 3.9, we see the command, do not lie to one another. But see, that's talking to individuals. Okay, that's telling individuals that we aren't to lie to one another, but that's not what is said in, in, in Ephesians 4. We're not to lie to one another. That's part of the code of the new man since or because we have already put off the old man with its deeds and have put on the new man. So the rationale for not lying to one another is that we have put off the old man and we have put on the new man. And it's very clear from the grammar there that indicates this is a past action. So when we look at 425, we see that there's a contrast. We've already put off the lie. Well, we have to answer the question, what exactly is the lie? What is it that we, we have put off? And second, it then says, uh, wrongly translated, um, uh, in verse in the King James, let me go back to that. Um, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. It should be let each. Uh, it is in contrast. We're not just telling the truth to our neighbor. That would be that's a put a, because it would, has to be understood in terms or with reference to lying. So it's the lie that we put off and we speak truth with the neighbor. That which is in contrast to the lie. It is not speaking truth. In other words, just being honest with your neighbor. Of course, that would be included, but this is much more than that. So we have to talk about this whole idea of what is the lie and what is the truth. Truth is a very important concept in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, now remember Ephesians 1 starts off that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then it's Paul breaks it down in terms of that which is related to the role and responsibilities of the Father, the role and responsibilities of the Son, and the role and responsibilities of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 13, it's concluding the second section relating to Christ. And it says, in him, that is, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth... So here he is talking about this message of truth, of absolute truth. And it is, then you have a, a parenthetical statement or appositional statement uh, explaining truth. It is the gospel of your salvation. So the gospel of your salvation and my salvation is absolute truth. And, and he says to them, having also believed, in other words, past tense, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. And at that same time that you believed, you were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. That uh, includes a number of things, but it means that we are given eternal security. We are, as it were, branded by the Holy Spirit as God's possession that uh, we cannot ever lose. 
but it is the message of truth that is the focal point that we need to remember. Then in Ephesians 4.15, we're told, by, but by speaking the truth in love, and the, the, the subject is, is the we from verse 14, uh, we, that is we in Christ, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. So what is this truth? The truth goes back to the message of the gospel. It's not just restricted to that narrow amount of information we need to have eternal life, but everything that flows from that. Paul uses the word gospel to refer to just the narrow good news that we have everlasting life if we believe Christ died for our sins. But remember in John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give, not only to give life, but to give it abundantly. So the gospel is the good news that you can have abundant life, not just life everlasting, but a quality of life, a capacity for life that comes only as a result of a study in the Word of God and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in 4.15, speaking the truth in love is related back in that section to also that which is communicated by those uh, leaders back in verse 11. And that this it's that message of truth uh, that is communicated to us so that we can come to the unity of the faith in verse 13, knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. All of that is in verse 13, 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So that's what the truth is. It's the content of the message of the apostles, all of it. And then in verse 21, we're told that that truth is in Jesus. So this is eternal and it's immutable truth. Beyond what Paul has said in Ephesians, we see other things said about the truth, in the, in, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is praying to the Father. Uh, this is the night before he goes to the cross. This is when he's at, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Father, sanctify them or set them apart by your truth. Sanctification here is not talking about our positional sanctification that takes place at salvation. It's talking about our ongoing spiritual life because he's praying for his disciples and by extension for all of us that we are the only way to be sanctified is by truth. We aren't sanctified uh, by ritual. We're sanctified by truth defined in the context as God's word. Your word is truth. So God's word is absolute truth. He says, and for their sakes, Jesus went on to say, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That is how we grow spiritually. And we have to understand that this is the claim of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that this is God's word and it is absolute truth. But we know that there are the skeptics out there, as exemplified by Pontius Pilate, who in his, uh, as he is questioning Jesus, he asked Jesus, well, are you really a king? And Jesus answered and said, 
Well, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. He came into the world. What was his message initially? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was being offered in his person as the king, but it was rejected, so the kingdom did not come. Uh, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the tr- to what? That I should bear witness to the truth. If you reject the concept of eternal, immutable, absolute truth, as you would if you're postmodern, then you've got to throw all the, all of the Bible away because the Bible claims to be absolute truth in chapter after chapter after chapter, the kind of absolute truth that is rock solid and that we can depend on. So he says, for this, uh, that I should bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So those who are of the truth are those who are believers who are positive and wanting to know the truth. When we get when we look at this, um, let me see, go back here. In verse twenty one, here uh, the article is lacking. Back, um, I'm going to go back one. In four twenty one, the article is lacking because it's emphasizing the quality of that noun. But, see, in English, to emphasize that, we would say the truth. It is the truth because uh, the Greek is without the article, but that is often stated that way to emphasize the quality of that noun. And so we see that um, again and again in the Scripture. Sanctify them by your truth. It doesn't have an article there. Uh, but it, it, its definiteness is indicated because of the uh, pronoun there. It just gets into some technical grammar, but that's what it's talking about, is this absolute, uh, immutable, unconditional, unconditional truth. It never means a truth. It means this qualitative truth that is above anything uh, in creation. And so we come to the second part of this command, for this reason, because you have already put off the lie, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Now, how do you define, understand what he's talking about here in the context? What is the truth? Is he saying you need to be honest with your neighbor? That's not what he's saying. He said, you need to speak that qualitative truth with your neighbor. And by neighbor, he means other believers, uh, which was clear from the fact that, that he I clarifies this with the more technical phrase, members of one another at the end of the, at the end of the verse. We're to be talking about the truth with one another. We're to be encouraging each other from the word. We are to, uh, it's great to get together with other believers and to talk about football and to sometimes talk about politics, but that's depressing. Uh, you know, to talk about all kinds of different things that we like and that we enjoy. But the main thing as believers is we're to be talking about God's Word. What have you been reading in God's Word? What is God teaching you? What are you learning? Uh, what are you reading? All, all of those kinds of, of questions. Let each of you speak truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. We are to speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See, this is a focal point. 
We're going to get to this when we go forward a little bit. I've gone through this before. There needs to be a reminder of it. All of the passages in Scripture that talk about what we are to do for one another. We are to admonish one another. We are to teach one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to love one another. And many other one another commands in the New Testament because we are members of one another. We're not isolated islands where we're living our spiritual life in a bubble. We are members of the body of Christ, which implies that there has to be this mutual ministry within that body, and that only takes place in the local church. So what we see here is that truth is that which is derived from and is consistent with the teaching of God in the 66 books of the Bible. We're talking about what we've learned from the Scripture. And the lie, in contrast, must be the devil's worldview. He deny, and what makes up that lie? First of all, it denies the creator-creature distinction. Now, that's something I've been spending a lot of time on on Tuesday night, the last uh, couple of lessons in Judges. It denies the creator-creature distinction. Once you deny the creator-creature distinction, what that emphasizes is the second line is an independence or autonomy from God. Uh, two A words go along with this, autonomy and arrogance, because to declare that we're independent of God as a creature is the height of arrogance. And then the last, the last is when we declare our independence from God, then we are hostile to God. There is antagonism, uh, antagonism toward God. So there are contemporary forms of the lie and um, that we run into. And one of them, uh, some of the phrases that we hear, I think I inadvertently dropped out a slide, but uh, some of the phrases we hear is people saying, listen to your heart. How do you know what to do? Well, just listen to your heart. That's just mysticism. There's a good Greek word for it, scubala. That's what you scoop out of a barn. Listen to your heart. Be true to yourself. No, we're to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to ourself. Trust your gut. Well, where, where do you get this knowledge that is in your gut? Well, you get it from your life experiences, and that's not the word of God. Um, the idea of feel good about who you are. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. I don't feel too good about that. And that's still true for a believer because it's only when you are walking by the Spirit that there's going to be a transformation. Happiness is the goal of life. Happiness is not the goal of life. Happiness is not the goal of marriage. What is the goal of life as a believer? It is to glorify God. As a as someone who's married, in a marriage, what is the goal of marriage? To glorify God together. That God brought Eve to Adam for the purpose of being a helper in achieving the responsibilities that God had given to Adam. That is, uh, that is their, their purpose. It's a team that has come into existence for the purpose of glorifying God. Or the last one, just be a good person. That's all you really need. Well, the, the scripture says there's none good, not one. So 
What do we have? We'll start with this. What is the origin of truth? Where does truth originate? Truth originates in the essence of God. It is one of the attributes of God we call veracity, which is just another word for truth. And we have passages from the Old Testament that talk about this. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Does anything in that verse sound familiar in light of what we talked about? John 1.14, Jesus came, he's full of grace and truth. Here, God is full of compassion and graciousness, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. So this is describing the character of God. Psalm 89.14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. God's rule over mankind. We're not talking about God as the king in terms of the messianic king in the kingdom. We're talking about God's sovereign rule over creation as the creator. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That means that whatever God chooses is right and just. He defines what righteousness and justice is. We don't. Mercy and truth go forth, go before your face. In other words, so so the, the throne of God is grounded on righteousness and justice, and the result is that which is applied toward us is mercy and truth. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. It's eternal. So that's what we see, is that truth, therefore, is eternal. It's the thinking of God. It's reality as God determines it. When we don't conform to God's truth, we are basically making up and inventing a fantasy. There's an old saying that uh, that a neurotic is someone who uh, builds castles in the air, and a psychotic is the one who moves into those castles as if they're reality, and the psychiatrist is the landlord. Truth, therefore, is eternal. It's the thinking of God. It's reality as God determines, defines, and describes it. But what we usually have is this sort of a, a methodology. Here we have God on the left as a tri- triangle representing the Trinity. Below we have humans, and we think God is truth. Well, what we often do is we create an independent ideal of what truth is or what righteousness is or what justice is, and then we expect when we say God is truth or God is righteous, he's conforming to our ideal of righteousness or he's conforming to our ideal of justice. So then we see that, well, God does something like uh, telling uh, Joshua he needs to kill every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. Well, that's not just. That's not righteous. See, what we're doing is we've created an independent, autonomous concept of what righteous is, and God doesn't meet our concept of righteous, so therefore God must be, he's a wicked, evil God. That's essentially what liberalism has done. They're worshiping an idol of their own mind. 
What the Bible says is that God in his character defines what truth, righteousness, justice, love, and holiness are. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is truth. He defines those things. We have to read the scripture so we understand what truth, righteousness, justice, and love really are. They are exhibited in the scripture. They are not some autonomous value that we generate on in our own mind. This is the problem you have with so many Christians. They say, oh, I love Jesus. Well, tell me about Jesus. Oh, he's so kind and compassionate. He loves the little children, and they go off in that vein. And they have no idea who Jesus is because they haven't ever been taught anything biblical about Jesus. They've just heard these these little stories that are more sentimental and emotional than they are factual and biblical. So we have to understand who Jesus is, and he's much more powerful, robust, and significant than what they were taught in Sunday school. And so we have to be Christ-like. And remember, uh, Christ is the one who went in and picked the money changers up bodily and threw them out of the temple. That doesn't fit their concept of Jesus meek and mild. So we have to define Jesus on the basis of what Scripture says. That's reality. And not on the basis of what we think apart from that. So just to remind us, John 1.14 says that Jesus comes and he is full of, he is characterized in everything he does by grace and truth. And what happens in John at the end of John 2? He, at the beginning of his ministry, he throws the money changers out of the temple. That's grace. That's truth. He's concerned about protecting the victims, that is, those who are being abused by the money changers, than he is protecting the criminals who are violating the law. So we're going to stop here, and next time we're going to come back to begin to look, break down the lie a little more and look at the origin of the lie and how that is manifested in the temptation of, of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that you have revealed so much to us, that this is reality, this is absolute truth, and that it is not just spoon-fed to us, but that we have to stop and think a lot about what the Scriptures are saying and how they are put together and why you have revealed what you have revealed to us and why you have perhaps not revealed some other things to us and why, why... it seems so odd to us when we read certain things. And that forces us to think more deeply and more profoundly about you and that we must always approach the Scripture with the presupposition that the Scripture is true, the Scripture is right, the Scripture gives us absolute truth, and we need to submit to that. Father, Jesus came. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is absolute truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. He is the truth and he is the life, and he came to provide eternal life to us, to offer us not only life but abundant life by dying on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin that we might have everlasting life. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening, anyone who is uh, perhaps listening today or in the weeks or years to come, and they've never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that Jesus is the unique one of the universe. He is the God-man who entered into human history to die on the cross as our substitute. He is our substitutionary lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that salvation is simply by faith in Christ. We trust in his death as all sufficient for our salvation. And at that instant, God regenerates us and we become a new creature in Christ. We are entered into the body of Christ We have put off the old man and put on the new, and we are to now learn what that means and live in light of it. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the significance of these things for our daily lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.